The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage to explore the world's decision-making and planning. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry. You'll hear firsthand how they made some of America's historic decisions. I'm Bob Whittle, Deputy Commanding General at Army North, and my co-host is Mark Lavin, our Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Welcome back to the General Planning Podcast. This is Bob Whittle with my co-host, Mark Lavin. Mark, how are you doing today? Uh, sir, doing really well. Uh, we do have the boss with us today. All right. We need to be on our, on our best behavior then, for sure. <laughs> so we do. We have Lieutenant General John Evans with us today, the commander of U.S. Army North and 5th Army. Sir, it's great to have you here. Oh, great to be here. And uh, it'll be a, a, a pleasant change if either of you is on your best behavior today, so... Sir, uh, sir, you've told me not to read your entire bio, so I I won't do that. But I do want to highlight a a couple things about you. So you've you've commanded at every echelon in the Army. One of them was the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which is a special aviation unit that gets the most elite warfighters in the entire U.S. military on and off the target on time, every time, and I know that was a challenging command. You had a lot of experience there. You've also been a deputy commanding general in the 2nd Infantry Division, a yep. large conventional division, which is stationed in Korea. Great assignment. Great assignment, yeah. Yes, sir. And then you commanded Cadet Command, which is U.S. Army Cadet Command is responsible for, for the commissioning of the majority of our lieutenants in the yep. United States Army. And now, as commander of U.S. Army North 5th Army, you're responsible for the Army's contributions and the land component contributions for homeland defense, defense support to civil authorities, and th- theater security cooperation with, with Canada and Mexico. So Absolutely. Quite, a, quite a large role. Well, it's, a, it's an exciting job, too, I'll tell you. Um, you. I don't know if there's anything that prepares you for this job, uh, this particular ASCC. Things are different in the homeland, and I think we'll talk about some of that today. But uh, it's just been a real pleasure to be able to serve with uh, U.S. Army, North and 5th Army. Yes, sir. Well, sir, it's great to have you here. Mark, I bet you have some, uh, some tough questions for the boss. Yes, sir. Of course I do. I, I was up all night, uh, you know, on my best <laughs> behavior for today. But, um, but sir, actually, from, from my perspective, I wanted to say thank you for uh, you know, joining us today, but also for your advocacy uh, for the podcast as we look to try to inform, you know, our mission partners across the homeland. Uh, and the value for planning and what, you know, what planning techniques senior leaders use, uh, you know, to, to really solve hard and complex problems. Well, it's, a, it's a great initiative, Mark, and I really want to credit you, and General Whittle, and, and your entire G5 team for kind of coming up with this and opportunity to reach out and, and hopefully bring some of our, our junior joint force leaders and Army leaders uh, in to listen to things that maybe will be helpful for them down the road as they face uh, the challenges of, uh, of leading our nation's military services. Yes, sir. Uh, so, sir, we'll start off with, uh, I guess, a doctrinal, you know, sort of templated question. Uh, you know, doctrine always talks uh, about how intelligence should drive operations and planning uh, being the first step in the operations process. And 
Uh, you know, what are your thoughts we were hoping you could share with the audience, um, you know, on how you've seen organizations sort of get this right or get this wrong uh, in your career? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Mark. And I think um, as I take a look at it, uh, and General Whittle had mentioned, uh, had an opportunity to serve in command at a lot of levels. Uh, maybe I just hadn't got it right yet. They keep throwing me in command. But, <laughs> but you know, twice as a company level guy, uh, twice in 05 level command, 06 level command, 07, 08, and now uh, as a lieutenant general. So I've had an opportunity to kind of be on the command side of things frequently. And what I'll tell you is that the variances, the differences in command at really the, the lower tactical level, we'll just say battalion command, right? Because that's when you kind of, first time you kind of own your own kingdom, so to speak, uh, with your own staff and a senior enlisted advisor, you know, that really has some season to him or her. Um, I think what you find, uh, particularly in the intelligence and the planning process, is, is you've got to provide a lot of inputs. I think that's required. You're dealing with a very young staff, um, very capable, but generally speaking, uh, much younger than yourself. There's a pretty wide variance there in, uh, in the seasoned approach of some of those officers uh, and NCOs. Uh, and then as you as you move to higher levels of command, the commander's intent and input is, is just as critical and just as important. Um, but you're going to get a whole lot more help, and you've got much more experienced staff officers now that are going to drive the process a little bit more. So your touches and your injects are important, but you probably don't want them to be as directive because what you want is you want to bring everybody in the room to the table to, to cover your blind spots because you're just not deep enough. You know, when I was an aviation battalion commander, I was kind of seen as the, as the senior most experienced aviation commissioned officer in the force. Uh, and now as a three-star commander, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably the most senior officer in the formation, but I may not have the most planning experience. I may not be the person who as, is as steeped in strategy as I probably ought to be. You know, I've been to the War College. I've done all that strategy stuff. But, but we've got incredible folks that are bringing solutions to the table all the time. And so in my mind, at the lower levels of command, the commanders really kind of got their hand on the throttle quite a bit. At the higher level, you just want to give guidance and puts and steers in there and let the team come back to you and say, okay, here's, here's what we've done. Here's the tools, the decision lens we're going to use to talk about what we think the appropriate uh, options are for you as a commander and, and you know, what you're going to forward up to the combatant commander for consideration. Mark, I think it's good to point out right now that General Evans does engage at the right times. And the reason we know that is it saves us a lot of time. And, and you know, so the, your guidance is very clear, and it does save the staff from working on several different courses of action. Sure. Sometimes you'll ask for two. A lot of times you really know what you want to do. Right. And they right. just have to get the details in there. Yeah. So I think the, it's that experience level piece, right? You kind of know what right looks like. A lot of times the commander, because they're getting direct input from senior military and civilian leaders, understands um, how they want to frame the problem set. Uh, and then as you as you present things to the staff, they, they start with a very wide funnel, and your job is to kind of narrow them down, I think. Um, you know, one of the things that I was told as, an, as a young officer um, and didn't give it a lot of thought until I became more senior is that the difference for commanders, commander to commander, the, the more senior you get is uh, is minuscule. In fact, there are four stars in the Army now that are, that are in my cohort or in, in the cohort after me, you know, fast movers. But we all came up as company grade officers at the same time. 
The same thing is true if you think about the, the degree of experience between a battalion commander and a company commander, particularly if that company commander is a captain. Uh, there, there's 10 years or more of experiential difference there. That's not the case between a battalion commander and a brigade commander and often not the case between a division commander and a brigade commander. So, uh, and now at my level, for two-star commanders, it might work for me. They're, they're very much kind of near my peer cohort or in my peer cohort. So um, the, because of the, the experiential gap is so low at the lowest level, that's where you have to be a little more controlling in the way you approach things. At the senior levels, you really want to hear everybody's ideas and then, and then kind of narrow the field for, for uh, your planners as they move forward. So, sir, when we do planning, we don't do it in a vacuum. We have to know what the environment is. And typically in the armed forces, that means the terrain, enemy situation, and even the friendly situation, knowing ourselves, things like how much fuel we have, how healthy our people are, sure. all those things. Absolutely. Yeah. I wondered if you had a good example of maybe where intelligence was driving operations and even vice versa in your experience. Yeah, so it's interesting. I thought it too kind of different and distinct examples. The first would have been, and this was, was while I was working with special operations, like you, you said, Bob, I've you know, been in and out of special operations for 22, 24 years, depending on how you count it. Um, but we were in the early phases of Afghanistan. This would have been in the early 2000s. Uh, and we still had uh, the ability to go out and do very deliberate um, air assaults and strike packages in the country as we were looking for Osama bin Laden. This is when he was still around. He was obviously target number one for, for all U.S. forces anywhere in the world, but particularly there in the theater where we thought he was still residing in or around the Afghanistan-Pakistan area. And what I'll tell you is um, because of a number of things, not, not least of which is the environment in Afghanistan, which is very unforgiving, particularly in the aviation um, world, we were very deliberate in the way we planned things. I can remember one particular operation, and I won't go into great operational detail, but we had put together about a 25 to 30 aircraft air assault with uh, some significant special operations ground forces, lots of enablers from the national level all the way down to theater-level enablers. Um, and we planned this over several weeks because we had been told with some level of certainty uh, – using a, uh, an abundance of intelligence sources that uh, Osama bin Laden might be operating in a certain portion of uh, northeastern Afghanistan. As we got closer to execution, I actually found myself as a major at the time. I found myself as the air mission commander going to our intelligence officer one night as part of the joint task force and going, so what's, what's your level of confidence that when we get to the target, he's going to be there? He goes, well, hey, sir, I got to tell you, based on reports and the fact that we, you know, we've been monitoring and updating the intelligence. I think it's becoming less likely that he's there. And I said, well, why are we expending all these assets to go do this? And he just kind of gave me the shrug like good intel guys do. But as I went up and talked with the ground force commander and, and, uh, and with our joint task force commander, who was a, a flag officer at the time, uh, we kind of asked, we kind of asked ourselves collectively that question, you know, is this something we still want to execute? And what we found was, there was some value in just demonstrating that we were going to go out and execute the mission. Although we were all hopeful, as it turns out, you know, Osama bin Laden was not on the ground. And frankly, we gleaned very little in intelligence uh, from that particular site. He probably had not been there in, uh, in a very long time if he'd ever been there. Um, so, you know, we were a little disappointed in that, but, but it gave us an opportunity to practice this very, very complex operation that we would repeat time and time again. And then, 
uh, as everybody knows, I think it was in 2010, yeah, 2010, uh, we got to do that in Pakistan and found him and got him. So that level of practice was important. If you juxtapose that where you've got this kind of low confidence intelligence situation that was hard to develop and took a lot of time with what we did several years later in Iraq, again, same special operations task force, uh, just some different players, um, we would go out at night with, uh, with intelligence that was more timely, uh, with less fidelity, uh, and strike a target. And uh, once we hit that target, and it might have been a much lower level, obviously it was a much lower level objective, uh, we used the opportunity to do battlefield interrogation right there on the target with the subject. Um, and in most cases, it was not hard to get them to say, yeah, well, okay, I'm, I'm just the number three guy in, the, in this chain. The number two guy, he lives in this city, and he drives from here to here every night. And if you take off right now, you can probably catch him. I mean, it was almost that simple. you know. And we got back in the aircraft after we planned with the ground force there, and we go strike the second target of the night. And sometimes we would do this three, four, five times in succession. And so, like uh, General Whittle was saying, we, we were striking to develop the situation and build intelligence. Uh, and the intelligence wasn't always coming from the highest level sources. Sometimes it was an interpreter uh, and a ground force operator talking to, um, you know, the guy that we had just rolled up in a convoy or at a safe house. Uh, and so... As I looked back on it, just two very different approaches to how we used and developed intelligence uh, to support planning and, uh, and execution. Yes, sir. I think that's a, you know, that, that's a that's a great you know anecdote in terms of um, the, the value of planning over time. I think a lot of the audience um, you know, would probably you know see and hear that story that you just told or stories that you told, and, and I think they might. Uh, be surprised, you know, by the fact that, you know, it did take, you know, a developmental process over a number of years. Um, I think when you, when you hear about some of those, uh, at least the, you know, the very um, high profile operations, sometimes there's this sense that it was, uh, you know, a group that came together very quickly and rapidly and, you know, and got after it. But I think, you know, hearing, hearing that, um, you know, one thing I think that, that strikes me, and, and hopefully you can you know, maybe share some thoughts on this is, sort of the, the culture that's required to drive um, that type of, you know, planning and that type of operations that allows, you know, the rapid decision-making process to sort of take shape. Yeah, so, um, and I think this is true of, of just about any organization, right? But certainly in special operations over years, there's an intensity level in what you're doing, an op-tempo that you have to be able to sustain. So uh, a lot of my friends, uh, and you guys are among them, uh, would deploy with uh, Army units, uh, what we would call conventional Army units divisions, for a year or 15 months and, and kind of give it all you got and then come home and have a chance to reset and move back into the patch chart for deployments later on. In special operations, we were turning people every 60 to 90 days, bringing, you know, kind of like bringing fresh legs into the ball game in the second quarter, right? Uh, and we did that because we sustained such a high op tempo that we, we could not deploy people for 9 and 12 months and sustain that. So we were just constantly refreshing the team. Now, the challenge there is you, you have a loss of continuity that occurs over time, um, but you also have a longevity over time because it was the same group of folks going back year after year after year. So uh, we got to know the train. We got to know all of the Met TC principles really well in our AORs. Uh, I think um, that is the thing that I'm left with the most is uh, I know every time I strapped on a deployment to go down range, I was going to be busy for – 60, 90 days, it was going to be solid. It was going to be constant. And really, weather 
was the only thing that would stop that because we were doing something each and every night uh, in theater. So uh, I think that's one of the things you have to consider, right, is just this intensity level that allows you to refine your techniques when you're working with tactical tasks uh, and planning. You know, we would jokingly always say about the Ranger Regiment, my good buddies over there, uh, Rangers uh, never quit planning. They just run out of time because that's how it was. I mean, every time we sat down, right, with uh, with those guys, they I mean, they were changing the plan to the last minute because because they were trying to be reactive to the intelligence that we were getting, which was constantly evolving. Uh, and, and similar other ground forces were the same way. But um, but I think it just speaks to the fact that it's, it's a lot about intensity, not tempo. Rangers never quit planning. They just run out of time. Got to love that, right? Yes, sir. Switching gears, sir, to uh, U.S. Army North and, and Fifth Army, and Mark was just talking about culture. And so one of our missions is defense support to civil authorities. And in those missions, typically the president will designate a lead agency, like Department of Homeland Security. Absolutely. Uh, maybe go deeper to FEMA or Customs and Border Patrol or the State Department. And when they need additional capacity – they'll ask the Department of Defense for assistance. And when that assistance is provided, many times U.S. Army North becomes the lead for that. Sure. Could you describe for us what that's like in terms of supporting other government agencies? Are there any challenges? Are there cultural differences? Yeah, so I, I, it's, a, it's a great question, Bob. I think... Um, all of us and probably many of the folks listening to the podcast who had an opportunity to deploy during what we'll call the war years, right? Really kind of 2001 until we were, we were basically out of Afghanistan and, uh, or completely out of Afghanistan and, and still have some level of force in Iraq doing security force assistance. But during those war years and we had large presences there, I think all of us worked with the interagency pretty, pretty, uh, uh, frequently, certainly in special ops. We probably had more of a flavor of that than others, but even, Conventional uh, military units had representatives from state, from the agency, from uh, justice, uh, from all of these other agencies, and we and we all became better, I think, at our joint and interagency approach to things. The interesting thing about the homeland is um, we're used to being in charge when we're downrange because we're kind of the big sled dog and we're the lead, and frankly, we're probably trying to accomplish military objectives. Here in the homeland, that's never the case. You know, as you guys well know, we, we are never the lead agency in the homeland. And so it takes um, it takes a little bit of a nuanced approach to, number one, get comfortable with that. And, and a lot of people struggle with it. And, uh, and we have to pull units back a little bit sometimes when they're supporting FEMA or other parts of DHS or State Department or HHS with COVID, depending on uh, who's the lead. Now, we, we do have to tell them, hey, remember, you're, you're not the decision maker here. You're here to provide capability. And as you take a look at how our, our national response framework is structured and the National Incident Management System, you know, it's really built so they are going with the, the lowest level uh, capability first. And then when you get to the very end and you've exhausted all of the local, state, and federal capability, it's only then that uh, they will go to the Secretary of Defense and go, hey, we need some DOD Title Ten forces in order to do this. We just don't have capacity. So um, I think that um, what we've got to remember is, you know, we we train constantly um, and educate, not just train, but we educate our people on how to plan and how to plan effectively. 
we spent an awful lot of time working on, you know, the military decision-making process, the military planning process. We look at operational design. We throw a lot of brain power against that, particularly in our officer corps, where people are going to be touching the institutional schoolhouse about every eight to 10 years. Um, most of our federal agency partners don't have that, that ability or capability. They're not big enough, number one, so scale becomes a problem. And then number two, they just don't have that as part of their their professional education process. They don't continue to do planning, teaching planning. They'll do planning exercises, and they'll learn through experience about planning. But when you walk in the room as a DOD Title X person, active duty, chances are they're going to look at you and go, hey, the planner's here. You know, and I think that's that was really instructive for me when I got here to Army North. Yes, sir. I think, I think that's um – it's excellent the way the way you juxtaposed sort of the Department of State or, or interagency, I should say, um, you know, methods and approaches to sort of solving problems. Uh, one of the things that, that I that I noticed, you know, that was you know very, particularly with the Operation Allies Welcome, was that you know sometimes as a planner, when you bring things to the conversation, what you're really bringing is a logic that can be tested against sort of the reality, as opposed to getting caught in uh, sort of an endless series of tasks that have to get followed because there's a problem, you know, that's right in front of us. And so the ability to sort of, uh, you know, take that step back. And so, you know, one of the formative things for, for me with, you know, with my time with you, uh, you know, very early on was during OAW and you said something and you, you probably won't even remember this conversation, but, um, but I did. And I, uh, I say a lot of things I don't remember. <laughs> So we, we were in your office, and we and we were in the you know the number of, of migrants and guests were you know was still rapidly rising coming from uh, you know, coming from. Mark, I'm just going to interject briefly and explain what Operation Allies Welcome is, and this is when Northcom and U.S. Army North was supporting initially the State Department and then the Department of Homeland Security to resettle over seventy thousand Afghan refugees in the United States, mostly over the course of late 2021 and early 2022. Um, that was sort of OAW in the, in the, in the short, in, the, in a nutshell. Um, but I'll never forget the general, uh, you know, sitting next to you at the table and we're looking and, and we're, you know, and the team, you know, writ large was, was in the fight. I mean, we had, you know, thousands of migrants that were getting off of planes and, and you took the time to say, all right, well, what does this look like in, in six months? How is this going to, you know, sort of end? And then, you know, and how do we start closing down, installations potentially and no one was thinking about how you know how this ends was really what, what we were trying to get after um i say we with with you and your comment to me was I'm a, as a commander i know where i need to make decisions i can visualize how you know this is going to play out what I, what I need the planners to do is show me the context and show me sort of the data the historical evidence and the historical aspects of of, of what what that decision you know may um the second and third order effects of that decision, right. you know, so that it's, it's, it's an informed decision, particularly given, you know, a relatively, you know, unique and innovative uh, challenge. And I guess that's a long way around to ask the question of, um, you know, providing a commander's vision, understanding, you know, the military um, decision-making process. Is there a specific step or is there a specific method that you've seen at different echelons with, a, you know, the unique series of challenges that you face, not just here at Army North, but even in your career that you would you would point to and say, hey, this is this is kind of who, who and how I make you know really good decisions and planning for my organizations. Yes, it's it's a good question, Mark. Um, as succinctly as I can, I'll just say uh, I, I think it 
It's about uh, your commander's input and touches. So if you read through, you know, obviously our doctrinal text, it talks about the military decision-making process, and, and there's these entry points where the commander will come in during the estimate. The commander will come in during course of action development. The commander will be present for wargaming. Um, in a lot of instances, what you'll see is um, the commander comes and gives initial guidance, and then the next time the commander touches the process is when somebody's briefing courses of action to him or her. I think that's a little late, right, because now you've got the, uh, the real – um, possibility that the commander's going to go, no, 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 you didn't understand what I wanted you to do. Go back and start over. Uh, and you never want to do that, right? You never want to burn that kind of that kind of capacity, that kind of staff capability, and find out that you didn't get the outputs you wanted. And so what I try to do, and I think this is my job, right, is um, you're kind of like the G5, right, who's thinking out, who's thinking in terms of plans and strategy. I think my job is to look beyond the, the near horizon and, and start thinking, okay, what are going to be our – our dilemmas, you know, that are, that are going to happen six months from now or, uh, you know, as we see a change in policy. And this is the thing about the homeland that General Whittle was talking about that's very, very unique. And if you've not worked, you know, in NORTHCOM, you probably haven't experienced it to a great degree. Um, I mean, the homeland's different. Uh, and so whereas you might get policy, uh, you know, in, in one of the other Ford theaters, generally they give – you know, the, the uh, secretary is going to provide guidance and the combatant commander is going to take the ball and they're going to run. And there'll be a pretty wide field and pretty wide lane for them to be in because they're operating somewhere else. And they'll work in conjunction with the ambassadors and the country teams and the diplomatic side of things. Here in the homeland, I mean, so we're getting lots of help every day, right? Um, just by the nature of the fact it's a very political environment, which we're not very comfortable with because we're the military and we want to be kind of above that fray, so to speak. But it influences decisions that are made. And those decisions can, uh, can be made when situations change rapidly. And as we watch the evolution of what was going on uh, during, uh, specifically during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which, as you pointed out, the, the fall of the government there was much more precipitous than we thought it would be. You know, uh, it really kind of surprised everybody. Um, but what that did is it, it created an urgency to get the people, our friends and partners and allies who had worked with us out of country sooner because we knew their, their timeline was limited. And that drove policy decisions, uh, and that got embroiled in politics because there were questions about, you know, the efficacy of our decision and everything else. Um, so uh, we don't like being part of that, and we, we give everybody the Heisman and say, I'm not going to opine on that. It's not my job. But we still get pulled into the second, third order effects of all of that that happens, and we have to be ready to respond when policy changes as a function of the political environment. So, um, and OAW was a really good example of, um, of a place where you just had to be flexible every day. I think you can remember we were, we were counting things, right? We were counting everything, numbers of people, numbers of children, numbers of unaccompanied children, numbers of soldiers or service members at one installation, and I said, hey, the numbers are important, and we need to get, and we need to make sure that we are aligned with uh, NORTHCOM, and, and it, we're getting one set of definitive numbers, because as you remember, our lead federal agency was sending up one set of numbers, and we'd send up something different. And this was frustrating people, um, but the numbers weren't the paramount thing. Whether it was, you know, 65,000 uh, Afghan, 65, Afghan guests that we had, or 64,752, in the, in the aggregate, that, not a big difference. Uh, it, it was important to people that like to do the bean counting, so we made sure we got it right. 
But that's kind of where the commander needs to be. He needs to be a little bit above how many MREs do we have in the ALOC and, and kind of more about, okay, what's the feeding plan six months from now? Uh, so that's where I tried to focus some of the effort. Yeah. I've always found that the only way to have one set of numbers is to only have one report. There you so go. Whenever you have multiple reports, it's not going to be synchronized. And, and I'm sure a lot of people out there see this as well. If you want to synchronize a calendar, have one calendar. As, in, as soon as you have more than one, it's never quite synchronized. So one of our big efforts across the national security enterprise right now is actually recruiting this Absolutely, incredible yeah. all-volunteer force that we have. It's so important. I wanted to get your a, a couple things, sir. One is, is I'd, I'd like to hear why you joined the Army. I mean, now you're a three-star general. I don't think any of us dream of being three-star generals when we're in junior high or anything like that. So maybe briefly why you joined and, and why you ended up staying in uh, all, the way, all the way to this level. Uh, and then any other thoughts you have on recruiting? No, thanks for that, Bob. I appreciate it. And, and it's funny, I spent almost three and a half years as the commander of Cadet Command. Uh, and during that time frame, with the exception of the year that we, that we didn't do what we call cadet summer training at Fort Knox, uh, where we bring about 10,000 cadets through in a 100-day uh, That COVID year, we didn't do it there. We spread it out over the, across the nation. But the favorite question that every cadet has when they have an opportunity to talk to me, because I would talk to every junior that came to train, is, you know, why did you join the Army? You know, what drove you to do this? You know, followed closely, you know, a close second to that is how do you become a general? Okay, back up there, sport. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the uh, my my reasons were not so much different than, than so many other people I've met. I, mean, I know your personal story, which is always fascinating. Um, but uh, I went to college, uh, was not on a scholarship when I went there. Uh, fancied myself playing football, that didn't work out. Uh, and um, and my college roommate, whose father was a product of Army ROTC. University of Tennessee, told both of us before we left for freshman orientation to sign up for a class, he goes, hey, take ROTC. If nothing else, it's an easy A to pad your GPA. So, we, we, okay, yeah, that's all we need. So, you know, we both signed up for the class. Little do you know you're speaking to the future commander. Oh, uh, so it's, it's so funny how things work sure out, the, right? the grades must be a lot harder to come by now. <laughs> yeah, they are. So I, I made that tougher when I got to Cadet Command. No, actually, you know, the first couple of years of, uh, of ROTC are really just kind of like your standard kind of rote memory type thing, you're getting inculcated to the military and what happens. And, and I'm sure all the officers that are listening to this can identify with that. But repelling was my favorite. Yeah, that, you know, that's always the other thing too. Is and then you get to go out on that lab and repel. But but I I did that, and um, and one of the assistant PMSs came to me at the end of the year and goes, "Hey, your your grades are really good. You'll be very competitive. Are you interested in a scholarship? And we'll contract you right now." And I said, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, um, my mom and dad were helping me pay for college, but uh, I had two brothers behind me, and it was going to stack up somewhere for somebody. And I said, well, if I can help with this and pay for my own college, that's great. Uh, and so I signed that contract there at Appalachian State University and, uh, and, and you know, got contracted. And then you know, my, my PMS the following year, we swapped out PMSs, was an Army aviator, and I started talking to him about aviation because we ought to think about flying. Are you healthy? I'm like, yeah, sir, I am. I good eyes, good ears. That's generally what disqualifies people. And uh, was able to qualify for aviation service. Went down, um, got raided in Apaches at Fort Rucker, went to the Gulf War, really enjoyed it. And, and it was the team, it was the camaraderie element, right, of, um, 
of being in the army that that kept me there. I was watching my friends depart at different points, and I'm still watching them depart the army to go to bigger money and and maybe more better financial opportunities um, as they gain more experience. But I just always enjoyed the work and the people. And then I I had an opportunity to serve in some fabulous units too. Um, But I tell people don't get hung up about the unit. I mean, we, every unit we've got in the army is a great unit. You just got to invest yourself in it. So starting at the 82nd was great. And then going to the 160th for a number of years was good, but I enjoyed my tour in Korea, my only tour in Korea Second Infantry Division, as much as I enjoyed any other tour I had. And then Cadet Command was just a fabulous treat to be able to go and be in charge of the Army's ROTC, having been a product of it. So uh, I don't know what the magic is other than the people, Bob. That's what I would say. I think it's about the people. Well, I guess the Army has the uh, Appalachian State football coach to thank for passing on you uh, your freshman year for uh, for the football yeah, team. Yeah, so I, I don't think I'd have been much help for Mac Brown and the team. So that's where he was <laughs> when I got there. Mac Brown was at Appalachian State when I got there. But uh, – yeah, no, they they didn't miss out much. So, sir, in your uh, in, in your your uh, your comments, you talked about uh, your time at Cadet Command that one summer, that COVID summer. Sure. Um, in terms of planning, or in terms of the general planning podcast construct, uh, you know, how how significant was that for you as the commander, and you know, how did you sort of approach you know, trying to still uh, you know keep that organization focused on 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 the uh, commissioning you know goal? Well, you know, it's it's pretty interesting as I recall that time. Um, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know about COVID when we got into the planning process. Um, and, and I think I just took a look at it and I talked to my medical professionals. I talked to a lot of people and they said, Hey, this is going to get bad. This is going to get bad for our country. And there's going to be a lot of fear and there's going to be a lot of trepidation. Uh, and so cadet summer training is the army's largest annual training event bar none. We train 10,000 cadets in about 100 days, all of them at Fort Knox, and we bring just about everybody from all of our ROTC cadre detachments, you know, about 260 of them, 250 of them from across the country come in and serve as the cadre. And then we've got basically a brigade minus from the Army that supports the operation from a support side, providing everything from the logistics to the op four to uh, medical capability and so on. And so it's a major muscle movement every year. We start early. So as we started to see COVID un- unwrap itself, uh, and this would have been, I guess, uh, January, February of 2020, uh, I immediately went to the Army senior leaders through my boss at TRADOC, uh, General, uh, he's now retired, but General Paul Funk, and said, hey, boss, uh, I-, I think if we do cadet summer training, we're going to build a super spreader event that will be taken back to every college and university in the country by summer's end, and I don't think we want that responsibility. So uh, he immediately said, absolutely, I agree. Uh, he goes, build a plan. Show me how you would do this if we can't bring everybody to Fort Knox. So I, I just gave the mission to my team, to all the people that had so successfully executed what's a very kind of scripted thing that we do annually, right? You don't have to get real creative. We're trying to do the same things every year, so don't change it. If it ain't broke, don't change it. Now they had to go in and change it and figure out how we were going to do this across the entire Army leveraging all three components and support from more than just that one brigade that had been identified, but from across all of uh, the Army, Force Com in particular, but also the reserves and National Guard units that are out there, uh, and all of the logistics that go with that. Uh, they built a fabulous plan. Now, I had to brief Secretary McCarthy on it three times to convince him that this was the right thing to do, because I think he, he literally thought – hey, look, Darrell Williams and his team at West Point, they're going to go ahead and just do summer training the way they were doing it. And I said, yes, sir, Mr. Secretary. And 
all of those kids up there, they all stay inside the same gray walls, all 4,000 of them. So it's really easy to maintain that population. He can kind of sequester that group. I don't have that, that latitude. I'm flying kids in from Alaska, from Hawaii. I've got kids driving up from Texas. I've got kids coming from North Carolina, all over the country. Uh, and finally won the battle. Uh, and as we executed what we called Operation Agile Leader over the course of the summer in different spots around the country, COVID was coming into full bloom. And I think at that point, by the time we got to May, as we were starting to get the, you know, our cadre aligned and get the first training beginning in around June as kids were getting out of school, uh, I think everybody in the Army, as a matter of fact, I had several people in the Army staff going, thank God you guys had a plan for this because if we had tried to do this, uh, number one, there's no way the chief would have let us do it at that point. COVID was in full bloom. But, but we would have had an entire cohort of uh, lieutenants from ROTC, and we provide about 65% of the officer cohort annually. Uh, an entire cohort uh, that w- would have been untrained. Uh, and so what do you do with them then? Do you extend their officer basic courses? Do you delay them in school for a year? Well, the G1 came back and said, that's impossible. You can't just take 6,000 people out of the force in a year. So um, as it turns out, uh, we just, we again, trying to look beyond the near horizon, said this is what we've got to do, this is what we've got to plan for, and I, and I credit the team at Cadet Command for coming up with the plan. All I had to do was brief it. Sir, we wanted to ask you about reading. I know you're a pretty avid reader. In fact, you even gave me a, a book for Christmas. So, uh, <laughs> a whiskey book, no less. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> do you have any, uh, a book or any books you recommend for our audience? So it's funny. I, uh, you know, like all of us, I think, I'm, I'm drawn to the military history books, uh, and, uh, military stories. Um, certainly I've read a bunch about some of my contemporaries that work in special operations. Interestingly for the quiet professionals, they tend to write a lot of books, but, uh, I I tell you a couple that I've always enjoyed. Um, I enjoyed, uh, a lot of Malcolm Gladwell's books. So even though he doesn't talk about military stuff specifically, he kind of has this ability to ask hard questions and then use, um, logic and, and, and frankly, statistics to kind of demonstrate, um, you know, uh, how we can approach things differently to come up with creative solutions. Uh, I like Peter Zahan's books. They're really good. Uh, he's kind of a futurist and a, and a, uh, I can't remember what he calls himself. He's a, he's a geopoliticist, I guess, but, uh, but interesting examination anthropologically of where we've been as a people and where we are going, you know, in the world and some fascinating reads. But I think the one that that I recommended to lieutenants, um, which I think is really good, is the Liberation Trilogy, which is uh, Rick Atkinson's three-volume recounting of World War II, which is just fabulous because he goes into such detail um, on the planning aspects, right? So we're talking about planning. And if you take a look at all of the things, whether it was Market Garden or Overlord or Torch, all of these huge, huge muscle movements that had never been attempted in the history of warfare uh, with our with our allies and partners. It's just a fascinating, fascinating read. Uh, and frankly, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Day of Battle because that's about the uh, the Italian pe- uh, peninsula where Fifth Army was. So uh, so I, I always recommend that one, uh, particularly when lieutenants would ask me, but I think it's good for anybody and certainly anybody who's a, a professional military um, practitioner should, should pick up that trilogy and give it a read. So 
on that, I guess on that, on that topic, you know, so our audience, sir, is going to be, um, you know, young officers, uh, interagency, uh, you know, with your advocacy, we're able to put this on, um, you know, what are some things that you want, you know, the listener to get out of, uh, this podcast over the next, you know, six to 12 months as we bring, uh, retired senior leaders in to talk about, you know, both their experiences in the military, but also, you know, in the civilian world and how these, these tools for planning and decision-making are, are, are used across, across the board. Yeah. So, um, I think as we continue to focus on kind of strategy and planning, which is, which is important, uh, and the leadership elements there, um, the one thing I want to kind of revert back to is I kind of skipped the second half of Bob's question about recruiting and why it's so important. I mean, we've got to sustain our all volunteer force. Uh, and when people ask me, so how are we going to do this? Because, you know, it's hard for us to compete economically with some of the other opportunities that are out there that, that tend to bring people in. Uh, and what I tell them is, okay, you know, you can't pay, uh, we can't pay in the military what some corporations can pay their folks. There's no bonuses at the end of the year for doing your job well, right? Uh, but um, but it's, to me, it's about culture. And uh, when I talk to people who value bringing military folks into their corporate fold, that's what they talk about that they bring with them. They bring a culture. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes is Peter Zucker's quote, uh, you know, the famous American businessman, uh, that, um, you know, strategy is important, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I've just always loved that because it really kind of gets to, hey, you can, you, can have your, you can have your cost sheets and your, your, um, your profit loss sheets and talk about what you want to accomplish and talk about what your stock price is doing, you know, in New York today. But if you don't have a culture to sustain that, then you're just a flash in the pan. And so I think, the thing I would ask people to take away from this is, yeah, really dig deep and, th- and be thoughtful about how we're talking about strategy and then how we plan to support that. Um, but don't ever forget that the thing that makes us unique, I truly believe, uh, as a military is our culture. Well, sir, thank you. We really appreciate you spending time with us today. And Culture is a really good point. We'd love to get you back on here again for an episode in the future. We'll, maybe we could focus on yeah, culture that. on that that'd day. Be, that'd be fabulous, yeah. Yes, sir. But we're really uh, proud to have you here, and thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Really, And I appreciate, once again, taking the time to put this together. I think it's going to be a great podcast. Strength <laughs> of the Nation. 